If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode. If you enjoyed our recent series on the fall of Roman Britain, then good news, because some brand new research on the subject has recently been released. David Musgrove caught up with Professor Duncan Sayer. Hello to find and welcome out back to the History Extra End of Roman Britain podcast series. This is episode eight and I'm still David Musgrove. We've covered the question of what happened at the end of Roman Britain from several archaeologists from several different academic perspectives, drawing on the latest research to hopefully give you a good idea of the current academic thinking. This time we're going to get bang up to date though, because I'm talking to Professor Duncan Sayer of the University of Central Lancashire about a big piece of research that's only just been published. Duncan is a field archaeologist by training with a great interest in scientific archaeology, and he's been working on a project with a wide range of scientists to better understand what ancient DNA can tell us about population movements in the early medieval period. So the first thing I asked him was to just remind us all what DNA is and what ADNA means. Well, everybody has DNA to start with. It's the, the sort of building block of, of who you are. And your parents give you 50% of the DNA each, which creates the person. Um, and it's in every single one of your cells. And ancient DNA is, is material that's been collected from archaeological specimens as opposed to living humans. And obviously, the difference is that there is uh, a survivability issue with, with ancient DNA. It's got to survive locked in the skeleton, or whatever uh, tissue survives, intact for um, the length of time that it's buried to, to now. Um, and really, it's been very difficult and quite complicated to get ancient DNA until reasonably recently. Um, and that's because of that survivability issue. DNA breaks down reasonably easily. 
Um, so it's got to survive in in particular places, um, and also uh, because it's it, the contamination issue is, is pretty difficult and, and has sort of uh, really flummoxed people until uh, next generation sequencing really took off, uh, and that's made a, an absolutely huge difference to what we can do. So uh, for the projects that I've been working on since about 2016, we've, we've been able to get full genome sequencing of, of nuclear DNA. Um, a mitochondrial DNA, which is which is a superb achievement, and it's it's because there's a sort of recognition that the DNA survives better in in ancient teeth, and most importantly in in the petrous bone, which is part of the ear, and that petrous bone receives uh, a small amount of blood, which means it doesn't get contaminated by bacteria quite as easily, and it's extremely dense, which means that it doesn't break down quite as easily as other bones so you get really really good ancient dna survival in that so we try and collect uh, for the projects but i've been involved in the, the petrous bone uh, and then take a small piece out of that and then use that to extract ancient dna from so let's just take one pause there to be super clear that a dna simply means ancient dna and as Duncan is saying, the scientific methods for extracting and studying ADNA have come on in leaps and bounds in the last few years. And that's got loads of implications. But Duncan and his colleagues have been looking specifically about what it tells us about ancestry. And so the team that I've been working with, Max Planck uh, in Germany, uh, and it's the, the, the genetic population uh, research teams. And what, they're, what they've been doing is looking at um, sort of European spectrums of genomic makeups and haplotypes and try and work out uh, where people are most associated so what their ancestry is and in in the samples that we've collected going right way back to, to 2016 in the first paper we published as well as sort of big paper that we have uh, published now is trying to work out whether people have a genetic ancestry that's most closely associated with northwestern Europe, northwestern continental Europe, or um, sort of um, Western British Irish um, Iron Age genomes. And so with that, you can sort of infer whether they are uh, continental migrants or whether they are indigenous individuals. And of course, it's, it's much more complicated than that, because just because someone has Western British Irish um, association and they found them in Cambridgeshire doesn't mean they're from Cambridgeshire they could be from anywhere in the British Isles so there could be quite a lot of mobility still going on it's just that what we're able to do really for the first time is separate out people that we might consider to be of that post-Roman migration that took place from the continent versus indigenous communities and what's really interesting is we also see a very significant association with uh, a French or Belgium Iron Age uh, genotype that's not present in Britain up until uh, the post-Roman period. So what's interesting here is that Duncan is involved with a really big project that has examined over 500 individuals from across northwestern Europe, including 350 individuals from early medieval England, from remains excavated from cemetery sites across south and eastern England. These cemetery sites have been radiocarbon and artefact dated to the 5th to 7th century, so slap bang in our period. So if he can tell us something about the ancestry of these people from their DNA, well, that is breaking news. 
Okay, so listeners will be on the edge of their seats. What, what, what can you tell us? What's the, what's the picture that you see? Well, on a population history perspective, 74% of the genetics that comes out of those individuals is associated with continental northwestern Europe. And that's uh, quite an astonishing figure because that means that 74% of that DNA is effectively migrant DNA. Um, and that's, that's brilliant. There's been this sort of ongoing conversation in archaeology for quite some time about the nature of the migration. Is it a mass migration? Is it an elite migration? Was there even a migration? Uh, perhaps it is an invasion by elite warrior males. And what this does is it completely changes that, that conversation. What it says is, yeah, there is mass migration. Okay, you can't argue with that anymore. So what we could do is start to talk about what that migration actually is and who the people are and how they interact and how they build communities. And that's that's really exciting because I think that what archaeology has always been good at is, is those local stories and the individuals. We get right down into that sort of the person in the grave their identity, their personhood, how they were presented by the burying community. And actually, what we could also do with this data is not just to look at ancestry, but look at who people are related to biologically as well. So we can start to track families within the cemeteries uh, up to about the third degree, which is, which is brilliant. So we can start to talk about uh, groups of migrants who are burying their dead in small family clusters, in the cemeteries um, and then how they're using material culture or not to distinguish themselves from the rest of the burial population. This is pretty big stuff. Duncan is being categorical that there was a mass migration into England in the post-Roman period and that's based on a substantial data set of human remains and so the science here seems to be in line with the picture painted by the likes of the Venerable Bede of a substantial movement of people from continental Europe the Adventus Saxonum, as it's known. But that is surely too neat a story, isn't it? So, uh, first off, let's be a little bit careful because what we need to say is that I've been talking about these as having ancestry. So we can't tell you whether these people are first-generation or second-generation migrants. What we can tell you is that their ancestry, i.e. their parents, um, you know, are from or have that association with continental uh, Northern Europe. But we'd need to get that much more detailed picture of uh, whether the individuals were themselves migrants would be to look at isotopes and be able to get good distinctions between uh, the East Coast of Britain and uh, Northern Europe. And that is actually very challenging. So, yes, <laughs> what we can tell you is that the genetics indicates that 74% of the population were migrants or related to migrants, rather than the individuals were. In terms of the event of Saxonum, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. What it does is, is it puts that migration back onto the picture again. What I would like to, to say is that I'd like to be quite careful about how we talk about those individuals, because, yes, uh, in the past, we've called them the Anglo-Saxons, the Anglo-Saxon migration. But in terms of our terminology, uh, archaeologists can be accused of not being careful enough i think we talk about anglo-saxon objects artifact base we talk about anglo-saxon period and we talk about anglo-saxon peoples we sort of 
merging culture and material and time and art and ethnicity all into one thing and never being distinct enough about it. And what's what's clear is if we use that sort of term to describe these cemeteries, early Anglo-Saxon cemeteries, which describes this sort of cultural phenomenon uh, across effectively the, the south and east coast of Britain, uh, where you have burial with artefacts, uh, we call those early Anglo-Saxon cemeteries, but they contain a mixture of people with different biological associations. And what I think is quite important is that we call them that, but they certainly wouldn't have called themselves that. Um, so I'm not sure they ever thought of themselves as a distinct ethnic community that might be referred to in that way. So I do think we have to be a little bit careful of making that, that association. And what's clear, actually, is that you know, there are people with mixed backgrounds buried next to each other in these cemeteries as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and that whole, the, the phrase Anglo-Saxon is charged with all sorts of uh, difficult connotations that we've talked about quite a lot. Maybe we'll come back to that in a second. I'm just, I just want to take you back to this, this French material you've talked about. I'm a bit confused about that. So the French, when you say French, France, obviously to us today, we know where France is, we know what that means. France didn't exist as, a, as an entity in the same way uh, in, the, in the 5th and 6th century. So so who are those, who, who, what ancestry are we talking about here? What's, what's, what's going on there? Uh, okay, so... The French ancestry, uh, I think it's quite important. Um, so really we talk, sort of talk about uh, Western Central Europe, I guess, um, but very specifically France and, and Belgium is where we can make that, that connection most appropriately. Um, and that the, the haplotypes that are associated with that are much more close to French and Belgium Iron Age material. Okay, but that wasn't present in Britain in the Iron Age. It was only present, it becomes apparent in Britain in this early medieval period, in these cemeteries. So it implies then that we've got uh, a a new migration of people at that point. So this is part of that sort of general uh, melee of people moving around uh, Northern Europe, in and out of Britain and across and around throughout Britain at the same time. And it's apparent in all of our cemeteries, but it's most apparent in the ones in, on, in Kent and the East Coast. And I guess that's not a massive surprise because those are the sites that are closest to France and, and Belgium. Yeah, no, that, uh, that, that makes sense really, doesn't it? Okay, so um, can, let's talk a little bit about the, the context uh, as you described it, talking about uh, the sort of the artefacts and, and the things that these people, the, the, the remains that have been buried with. Um, so what's, what, what can we take from that? What's, what's the sort of contextual situation uh, in terms of, of, the, of the, the sort of culture that these people are associated with? It wasn't very well phrased, but... <laughs> it's still a good question. <laughs> so it's a good question, and it's a good question because that's basically what we've been doing as archaeologists, isn't it? So you know, there's loads of stuff saying, hey, look at uh, male weapon burials, uh, men buried with swords and spears and shields, and look at women with brooches and wrist clasps and belt buckles and belt hanging sets and, 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 and this sort of stuff. And trying to make associations about identity around the use of material culture in those objects so we can look at gender and age and things like that can see those differences so you you tend to have more objects as a woman if you're buried in your middle years than in your later years or your younger years 
children have less objects, they're slightly more eclectic, whereas an adult woman will be buried with uh, two brooches uh, and a hanging belt set, probably, as an example. And, and what this genetics does is it allows us to explore that in a bit more detail. And of course, what we've done in the past is talk about objects as being indicators of that ethnicity, that Anglo-Saxon identity. What's really fun about this project is we can start to break that down quite a lot. So, for example, um, the, one of the excavations or one of the, the finds we had from, from Wakington was Grave 80. And this is a, a woman who's buried with a completely articulated cow, um, which is great fun. And she was buried with two silver disc brooches, and she's buried with a, a chatelaine and and belt hanging set, girdle set. So this is like a, a bunch of metal keys with hooks on the end. And then a chatelaine is a copper alloy stick effectively with a sort of decorated square end that may have started off life once as a key, but has become sort of symbolic of that sort of uh, female belt hanging type sets. She's also buried with uh, a load of beads, which she was holding in her hand and a, and a knife. So this is what you've, described very typically as an early Anglo-Saxon furnished female burial for someone in her age. She was sort of 20, 25, something like that. And 60% of her genome is Western British Irish, not of continental Northern European descent. So she's more closely associated with an indigenous, if you like to use that term, um, people than she is um, a migrant people and that's really really interesting it might explain why her burial is a bit odd but actually she's buried under a mound she's surrounded by other burials so whether it's odd or not is irrelevant it's it's really prominent grave which structures the cemetery she at the point of death is an extremely important person in that community and she has this mixed descent and that's quite nice because it shows us how mixed up this whole thing is okay we've got uh, a male burial from Eastry in Kent. Um, and he's buried similarly under a mound. There's a ring ditch around it, so we've got good evidence that there was a small mound over his grave. He's surrounded by other burials um, in and out. And he's buried with a small, long sax. So again, he's a male weapon burial, okay? But he's 99% Western British Irish. He's one of the most prominent graves in that site and they're structuring a cemetery around him. He's prominent, he's important, he's buried in that way. And that, with that CX, that puts him in the, in the sort of 7th century, so you don't get loads of other artefacts in that, in that 7th century. So he is quite prominent, quite well furnished for that, for that date. So we can dismiss, I think, very quickly assumptions that we might have about uh, how people, you know, migrants buried with weapons, uh, migrants buried with Anglo-Saxon objects versus uh, poor uh, Britons buried on the edges of the cemetery. In fact, when you look at it, we have all the way across the East Coast, we have this sort of mixture of individuals with either this sort of hybrid um, ancestry or very clear uh, ancestry one way or the other. We have what I quite like... Um, is that we have a number of individuals who we can demonstrate are biologically related. 
So my favourite uh, is at Eastree in Uptown, or Uptown Eastree, which is also in, in Kent. Actually, I've just talked about uh, Burial 37, the Siax Burial. And adjacent to him, we've got Burial 47. And this is a really, really nice burial. She's buried with a beautiful, fine, uh, biconical wheel-turned pot. She has a knife, she has a metal uh, spoon, which is slightly unusual, uh, and she has a bone comb. And her ancestry puts her ancestors, probably her great-great-granddad, or maybe slightly older than that, as coming from West Africa. So we can look at a much greater diversity than I think we expected in the mobility. That puts that sort of West African ancestor in about the middle of the 6th century, because she's a 7th century burial. Um, and that's well after the Roman Empire has ceased to exist in Britain. But it means we've got connections to uh, West Africa, probably by a Byzantium. Uh, so we're seeing we've got to have the movement of people going on. We've got to have very dynamic uh, movement across Europe through these existing uh, trade networks for that person to exist, which is brilliant. Now, what I like about that most is not necessarily that particular part of the narrative, although important that is. It's also that she is buried next to uh, graves 34 and 45 or very close in the same area of the cemetery and those are both uh, women as well one an adult woman and one a sort of late teenager and they're buried with sort of usual array of artifacts they've got beads and they've got uh, a one of them has a workbox one of them has brooches one of them has a pair of shears um, and they're sisters probably uh, based on their on their genetics. But one way or another, we don't know which way it is, whether 47, our West African descendant, is their niece or whether they're her nieces. But they're also related. I think that's that's such a powerful part of this narrative because those two women are 99% uh, Northwestern European descent. They don't have the same... West African Association um, and we can see that that our burial 47 that West African descendant has got uh, that affinity through the male line okay so she's related to these two people that have this continental uh, ancestry in the cemetery she's buried in the same way as them with artifacts she's buried in the same place as that cemetery she's effectively part of that family and she's being buried as part of that family so that's brilliant we can immediately reject any sort of um, hypotheses we might come up with about individuals of different ancestry being associated with different statuses within the communities slaves or free or elite statuses she is just part of the family um, and that's nice. And I think it shows us how important that those families are to these communities. And really, for me, uh, and look at a number of other sites, we can see the same sort of family connections at West Heselton uh, through uh, people, male weapon burials, um, who are biologically related to each other. 
Uh, and actually, most of them, many of them don't have weapons as either. So you can see that sort of continental Northern European ancestry there in the female graves, in the male weapon burials, and in the burials without artefacts. But we can also see that there is a very strong family bond between those individuals. So for me, in these sites, actually, family is more important than ethnicity. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. That's, I was just going to ask you that very question. So how important is ethnicity? Ethnicity is, is essentially what you're saying is, is a modern modern concept, right? That is, that's, that's basically your position. So sort of status, ideas of status as, as we can view it through cultural objects are cut across you know cut across this idea of ethnicity they're they're not they're not related so you don't have this idea of 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 some sort of uh invading peoples coming from somewhere and then taking over being in charge of other people and and them being in charge because of their ancestry or ethnicity i'm using modern words here you are using modern words and that's what's important about it because those words underlie modern concepts and they're not necessarily the concepts that are shared by these people in the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries. And that, that is exactly what I'm saying, exactly. You know, And I think that what, what we've been guilty of as a profession, perhaps, I don't want to tar the entire profession with this brush, but some of us uh, in the past have, have associated objects and ethnicities. We can't. You know, I'm wearing jeans. Uh, I'm sure lots of our listeners are doing so too. Uh, I'm not American. I'm sure many of them aren't. So objects don't have ethnicity. What they might do is show us some sort of subtlety in the way that people are using them. 
So it might be that there is ever so slight differences at a local level. Uh, so, for example, at Apple Down, we do have burials on an east-west axis and burials on a north-south axis, and there are slight differences in the artefacts that are found across those um, differently orientated burials, and there is a slight difference in the ancestry of those individuals. And, of course, Apple Down is on that west end of our axis, so we've got a much greater Western British-Irish um, ancestry in that cemetery. Uh, actually, I think it might even be larger than the um, uh, than the northern Western, uh, northern European um, ancestry. About the same, anyway. It's, it's somewhere around there. Um, and what's interesting is that there are subtle differences in the way that those burials are taking place. But actually, I think, given the strong biological association of that central east-west community, it's probably not about ethnicity, it's about membership of a core group of family individuals or core families that run the place, okay, that run the farms, that run the local villages, that run that community, rather than ethnicity. You're saying that there's, uh, there's evidence for a substantial population movement from what's now northern Europe into Britain in the in the fifth and sixth centuries, and that goes kind of at odds with with what what some people have argued for in the past. It sort of potentially agrees with what people have argued in the past in terms of invasion, um, or at least it allows for that that, that possibility, I guess. But what what does it? Do, what do you understand? How do you understand this potential movement of people? Is it is it invasion, migration? One of my previous correspondents has talked about the possibility of these people being refugees. Have you have you got any any idea about the nature in which these people might have moved across the channel? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so we talk about it in terms of mass migration as opposed to invasion, and I think that what we can see in migration patterns, uh, or actually, it's what we can see in uh, invasion patterns is that they have a gender bias in one particular way. You end up with lots of your migrants and men with weapons. Um, and I think that's very much how those arguments about invasion were framed. Um, whereas that's not what we see at all. We see women and indeed infants that have uh, that continental ancestry. And maybe those infants are born here, but you can see the sort of familial associations is what's what's really important. And there are as many uh, women as there are men who have that direct ancestry to, to continental Europe. So they would have included first-generation migrants and second-generation migrants. Um, and I think that's quite important because you've almost certainly got then people who are moving and settling in established units already. They are families who are, are moving um, what we probably have to do really is, is start talking about it in terms of, of mass migration, which is uh, a phraseology that's probably been avoided over the last 20 years. We talk about elite migration or the sort of migration of culture rather than the movement of people. But absolutely on the cards is that is that idea of mass migration. And what I like about it is that we've got this, this sort of evidence then of integration as well. That's mass migration, settlement and integration with the pre-existing individuals that creates a sort of hybrid uh, biological uh, components, but also creates a new hybrid culture, material culture as well. Because quite a lot of the brooches that we, we describe as Anglo-Saxon 
are uh, uh, entirely insular and that they are they have influence from the continent but have been reinvented here and have new typologies that are present in in the British Isles. So really, this gives us a mechanism to understand how that might work. People inspired by where they came from and coming into uh, the east coast of England, settling, meeting new people and come up with new ideas about how to make and how to use those objects. And that really, I think, is what we're describing when we describe that sort of early medieval east coast, that Anglo-Saxon cemeteries. Okay, so it's mass migration and then integration, not population displacement of the of the people who were there before. You don't see evidence of that, or uh, or if you do, it's not significant. Not in this data, we don't see that. Uh, we don't see displacement. Uh, we're seeing that sort of integration with um, this Western British Irish um, haplotypes, this genomic Western British Irish signatures. Uh, and then we're seeing individuals that are hybrids of those two in the same cemeteries. So you're looking at multi-generational integration. Of course, on a population level, there might be more going on. It's very difficult to, to see. We don't have cemeteries that are entirely Western British Irish on the East Coast. And that's sort of very interesting because I think if there were significant independent communities that were resisting migration, you would you would see groups of, of cemeteries that have that uh, biological signature, that genetic signature. Um, but what is quite interesting about the data set is that this connection to continental Europe is actually quite short-lived. And that's something we haven't seen in the, the pre-existing um, published material. It's that actually this probably starts to disappear as we move into the late Saxon and medieval period. And so really that points much more to a sort of integration and eventual disappearance of this very strong northern continental um, European ancestry. So a short-lived but mass migration into the east coast, which includes a sort of integration and eventual disappearance of that genetic signature. Okay, so that um, that plays into the um, into the discussion about continuity quite nicely, actually, because a lot of scholars have, have uh, well, a lot some scholars have argued for for seeing patterns of continuity in in occupation in, in social patterns in, in England. I'm I'm thinking of um, of the work of uh, Professor Susan Westhazen, uh, who I interviewed on the podcast a couple of years ago. She did a, a, an interesting project looking at common rights to land and and so she identified uh, long durée similarities in that, which suggested to her that the, the, the population must have been fairly similar. And I think she was broadly arguing that there wasn't much of a, a, a migration of, of people as a consequence of that. I, I might be putting words into her mouth a bit there, but that's that's my inference from from what she was saying. Um, so, does, did you does your integration idea sort of allow for that? I suppose um, a sense of continuity. I think it's possibly why uh, it's possible to interpret on archaeological data alone in both directions, because there are some things that are clearly continuous from uh, the Roman period right the way through into the Middle Ages, and some things where we see a, a disjuncture. And if you've got a community of people that are coming in and they are understanding the landscape through the lens of the existing community and integrating <coughs> with and adapting with and taking on the stories of those people, then that's exactly what you'd see happening. Effectively, they're not overlaying onto the landscape a completely new picture, a new interpretation of that landscape. They're adapting it and making it their own based on how they understand it with those interactions with the 
the indigenous community. Mm-hmm. So that I think would allow for that 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 continuity. Right. I want to stop for a moment and just think about the bigger picture. We've got a really interesting and quite complicated situation being described here of a, a very mobile population, people mingling and sharing ideas and seemingly being much less obsessed than we are today with ethnicity. But were these people moving into Britain because there was a power vacuum left by the decline in Roman imperial power in the early part of the 5th century? Does Duncan's data set do anything to shed light on that? I think it's, it's departing from the evidence quite dramatically. And what's quite interesting is that when you look at the haplotypes that we've identified as, as migrant haplotypes, we can actually see them in the Roman cemeteries, for example, in, in the York burials um, from Graves of Terrace, where you've got some individuals that have exactly the same um, migrant uh, haplotypes. And also you can see them in... Uh, our Middle Saxon cemeteries, so at Sedgeford, at Hingston and Linton on that um, east coast to a much greater degree than we can see in the 5th and 6th and 7th centuries. So I think in reality we're looking at either continuous migration or lots and lots of lots and lots of migration events that take place from probably the middle of the Roman period right the way through into at least the Middle Saxon period, if not much later, pushing up with and abutting against the Viking um, invasions or migrations or whatever you want to call them, really, which are coming effectively from the same sorts of places as our northern European continental ancestry in the first place. And I think the difference between whether you're, I've been using inverted commas now, Anglo-Saxon migrant or a Viking migrant or a, a sort of Roman federati migrant is the place you're coming to and that sort of historical contingency are you coming into a Christianized uh, Anglo-Saxon landscape that is no longer connected to Scandinavia, and thus you're a Viking, you're a Vader, you're a threat? Or are you coming into uh, you know, that sort of pagan 6th century community that has still got family associations across the seas, in which case you're welcome and you're part of that continuous spectrum of migration? So I think, you know, to some extent, whether these people are seen as migrants or invaders is about the, the place they're arriving at and how that's changed, partly as a result of this sort of continuous connection and migration, but partly as a result of those sort of internal uh, politics and kingdom creations that are happening at the same time. Well, that's a really interesting point then, and I, so I'm going I'm to push you for your view. How do, how do you envisage the society of uh, 5th century Britain that uh, in which these these migrants came into? What what do you imagine uh, the place was like? Well, so on the work we've done on uh, on Roman forts in the north of Britain, um, it suggests that you've got quite a chaotic space anyway. In you know going back into the fourth century, you don't even have to talk about the fifth century at this point. You've got a, you know we've got there yeah, a fort at uh, Ribchester in Lancashire that is sort of dislocated from its peers, really. It's it's sort of connected mostly to the Hadrian's Wall forts or the Yorkshire forts, not really uh, material, at least, to, to London or to Manchester or to um, Chester, where you'd have had supply routes coming in traditionally in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It's becoming much more um, independent, uh, and I think that you're seeing this sort of diversification of, of what a soldier does into manufacturing and self-subsistence. 
And really, it's looking a lot more like a small fiefdom, a little warlord's place. And that's similar to what people are saying about the forts on Hadrian's Wall and in north of Britain, where you get sort of small territories and kingdoms almost. But they're still calling themselves Roman. They're still talking about themselves as Roman. They're still using Roman material culture. But the most important person now isn't the emperor. It's your commander. And they're also not drawing their troops from the continent and haven't done for generations. They're drawing them locally. And I think you know, you're coming in and into this sort of territory that is a mixture of local fiefdoms uh, and a mixture, a real sort of diversity of identities around those sort of military identities, but also Roman towns. And I think it's probably quite chaotic. And I think really what you're doing is bringing the same sorts of ideology into that. You've got sort of powerful families, connected individuals. Uh, you've got the sort of access to and use of material culture that's important, that designates wealth or creates followers. And you're just creating a new way of competing uh, across the East Coast anyway. So really, I don't know, you know, I sort of like the idea of continuity in that we tend to think of Roman Britain in a second century mode. But actually, by the time we get into the fourth and fifth centuries, it's really chaotic and quite dangerous and diverse. And that's that, that's the place that, that people are coming into. So a, a long process of change potentially is is what you're talking about. So if we if we didn't have documentary references, if we didn't have um, the sorts of things we've talked about in this series before, like the, the 410 AD rescriptive Honorius saying that the the people of Roman Britain needed to look to their own defensive, the disputable though that may be, would you would you not would you say well that that's not a particular moment? You know, this has been going on f- for a, for a, quite a few years before that anyway. Yeah, I would exactly say that. Yeah. But of course, we're structured by uh, those sort of previous perspectives and those attempts to create stories out of this chaos. You know, that's just what the early writers are doing. They're trying to understand how they've arrived at at the place that they are uh, using the stories of their peers and and the stories that come down to them. So, you know, you talk about the Anglo-Saxon invasions of, of the 5th and 6th centuries actually might just be a way of understanding that sort of development of the ecclesiastical history of Britain as opposed to trying to understand the chaos and diversity of, of the past. Okay, well, this has been a really interesting conversation. We've covered so much ground here that I think before we finish, we could do a summary. So before I wrapped up my interview with Duncan, I asked if he could just give us a top-level reminder of the main thrust of the finding of his research and how the ADNA evidence is reshaping the picture of what happened at the end of Roman Britain. So in summary then, I think that we've been able to use the the ancient DNA data to bring uh, mass migration in the post-Roman period back into perspective again. And what I think is really important about that is that we're seeing uh, a diversity of individuals within cemeteries on uh, the south and east coast of, of Britain. A diversity that implies that what we've always traditionally called early Anglo-Saxon culture is actually a hybrid culture. These are hybrid communities and hybrid people that are basing their identity and the organisation of their lived environment around family associations that are quite evident from that genetic data. So really, we have to be very careful of, of imposing our own ideas of ethnicity, the sort of post-colonial perspective, onto a past that actually placed 
family, relationships and community at the forefront of its um, life, of its space, of its expression of identity, as opposed to ancestral origin. I think that what we really need to do based on on this is start to look at local histories and interactions of people uh, and not necessarily impose um, big scale perspectives onto that picture. So, you know, so well, uh, did the Roman Empire collapse or not? Maybe. But in some of these people's minds, it didn't. Did they talk about themselves as Anglo-Saxons? Certainly not. So what is it? What is that human experience in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries? Uh, even going back further than that, in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, what interactions do they have with people from a diverse background? And I think it's much, much greater than we've given it credit for in the past. Okay, so you've been listening there to Professor Duncan Sayer of the University of Central Lancashire. And as I've said, this research is really at the sharp end, and it no doubt is going to cause a fair bit of conversation and debate amongst the experts as they discuss how it reshapes our view of what happened at the end of Roman Britain. There are loads of themes, I think, that do seem to be echoed by what our previous guests have talked about, however. The fact that it's complicated, for one thing, the dangers of generalisation and the importance of locality and family to the people of 5th and 6th century Britain. I'll try to bring a few of these themes together in our final episode and think about where the research is going next. So I do hope you'll tune in for that. 